The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to go to the uh, Word. So we'll take a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the fact that we have your word to guide and direct us, that your word teaches us a framework for thinking about every issue in life, whether it's law or literature, whether it's politics, whether it's finances or family, Father, your word gives us a framework for dealing with every issue in your creation. Now, Father, as we study these things related to the doctrine of baptism this evening, we pray that you'd help us to understand them, gain a clearer picture of just what the Scripture teaches and why. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we need a little review because last week I was asked a question after class, and this week I was asked a question before class both of which indicated that there needed to be some review just to make sure we understand what I was trying to get to last week. Ephesians chapter 4, Paul says there's one faith, one hope, one baptism. And the question is, what baptism does that refer to? And the baptism that that refers to, I'm having trouble with my earpiece here, the baptism that refers to is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That is what distinguishes the church age from every other era in history, every other dispensation. There's no baptism by means of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. There's no baptism by means of the Holy Spirit in the uh, tribulation. There's no baptism by means of the Holy Spirit in the tribulation period. It is unique to this era. Therefore, it is the baptism by the Holy Spirit that marks off the church age dispensation. It is the outstanding characteristic of the believer. And the believer in the church age is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And as a result of going through the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, the believer is placed in Christ. And it is in Christ that we have all of the privileges and assets that uh, we have as church-age believers that distinguish us from everything else. So this is a crucial, crucial doctrine to understand. So we have to go back to look at these passages. I was pointing out last time that in these baptismal statements, there are certain prepositions that are used in the Greek that are not consistently translated over into the English that indicate certain features of baptism. And let me just break it down for you. First of all, you have the verb baptism, or 
are to be baptized, literally in English, that's the verb. In Greek, it's baptizo. And that verb can be either an active voice verb or a passive voice verb, just to keep it simple. Active voice means that the subject of the sentence, the grammatical subject of the sentence, performs the action of baptism. So when John the Baptist says, I baptize you by means of water, the subject of the verb is the pronoun I, the first person singular pronoun I. And that he's the one who performs the baptism. But he who comes after me will baptize you uh, by means of the Spirit. And so in that construction, the one who comes later, which of course refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who performs the baptism, the subject of the verb. But what happens in some cases is that the a passive voice is used. And so there's a reversal of subject But now the term that is used to describe the performer of the action in a passive sentence is called the agent. The agent is the one who performs the action of the verb. It's not a grammatical term. It's not the same as the grammatical subject. So you have to, I know it's been a long time since sixth grade when you studied this stuff, or eighth grade, but that's how you have to understand, have to understand scripture. And if you're from a certain generation where you went through high school, in the 70s, and you were taught transformational grammar, then if you even know what a grammatical subject is, just thank some teacher that didn't do what the state of Texas said they were supposed to do. When I went through college and majored in English, that's the grammar we had to take, and I had no clue what it was about. It didn't bear any connection to any grammar I'd ever studied. It was one of those postmodern attempts to introduce uh, structural relativism into grammar. Okay, here's the key verse on the baptism by the Holy Spirit. For by one spirit, and there we have the Greek preposition in used, E-N, not the English I-N, but the Greek preposition E-N is used. We were all baptized into one body. And the verb there is in the aorist passive indicative. Now, I stress the passive voice. The subject receives the action. So what's the grammatical subject of we were all baptized? The grammatical subject is the first person plural pronoun we. We is the subject of the verb baptized, but baptized is in a passive verb construction, so we doesn't perform the action. We receives the action. Who performs the action? It's not stated in that verse. Now, this is really important to understand because for years there has been debate for at least a century over this particular verse, primarily coming from Pentecostal theology, which argued that there were two different baptisms. There was a baptism by the Holy Spirit that was performed by Christ based on Matthew 3.11 and a baptism by the Holy Spirit based on 1 Corinthians 12.13. One happened at salvation. One happens subsequent to salvation when you get the gift of speaking in tongues or healing or, and, and, uh, and you get the second blessing. Now, I was reading a, uh, hyper dispensationalist, uh, this last week on baptism to try to understand their, what their arguments were. And in this particular, uh, dispensational theology written by a, by a hyper dispensationalist, Dispensationalist. For those of you who don't know, a hyper dispensationalist is someone, 
a dispensationalist who doesn't believe the church began until sometime later on in Acts. Some put it at Acts 9. Some put it at when Paul was saved. Some put it at Acts uh, 19. Some put it at the end of Acts. So they, they argue that the, all of Acts is transitional and uh, it doesn't matter. They, they would not make the demarcation, this is important, they would not make the demarcation the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. But that is the distinguishing characteristic of the church age believer. Uh, and we'll look at that as we go through our lesson this evening. Now in 1 Corinthians 12.13, we're told that we, all believers, were all baptized into one body. And you see that I, I have in the brackets there the Greek preposition ace for into. And there's a difference between that Greek preposition ace and the Greek preposition in. And in numity, uh, num, from pneuma meaning the spirit in the dative construction, indicates instrumentality. You do something by something. But it's also the idea, in can also express location. But here it's really instrumentality, and I'll show you that again as we went through it last week. Go, to understand all these, we have to go through them step by step. Matthew 3.11 says, As for me, now who's speaking? John the Baptist. As for me, I baptize you. It's an active voice verb. I, John the Baptist, am the subject of the verb baptize, and I am the agent performing the baptism. I baptize you with water, in hudity. There you have that same preposition, in, indicating the instrument that's used to bring about the baptism. Now, I pointed out that baptism has the meaning of dip, plunger, immerse. And it has this idea of primarily dipping, you know, putting something like taking cloth and dipping it into dye. It's not just immersing it, because immerse means to put it in and not take it out. And there's some, some confusion over that where some people go some strange places doctrinally. And I don't know if we'll go down, down those rabbit trails or not. Um, I don't want to confuse you. I just want to clarify and make sure you understand what this is saying. I baptize you by means of water. Water is the instrument for the purpose or towards the goal of repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you by means of the Spirit, in pneumatis. So there's a parallel drawn between the Holy Spirit and water. This is very important to understand. As John used water to picture the cleansing that was taking place to the converts who came to him, so Jesus is pictured here as using the Holy Spirit in the same way. The Holy Spirit is actually the real agent of cleansing, not water. All, that's what that First Peter uh, 3 passage indicates, not the, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It is the uh, work of God the Holy Spirit who positionally and absolutely cleanses us from all sin at the instant of, of our salvation. So Jesus will baptize. That's future tense. It's not happening yet. It's still in the indeterminate future uh, as, as far as John was concerned, and this was at the beginning of Jesus' Jesus' ministry. Now, in Acts 1.5, Jesus comes along. He's on the verge of the ascension. He's going to ascend by verse 9 and 10. And he is reminding the disciples what, he had, what John had said and what he had said. And he's telling them that not many days from now, this is going to occur. So he's talking about that baptism by means of the Spirit that John talked about. Acts 1.5, we read, For John... 
subject of the verb, baptized, active voice verb. John's a grammatical subject. John baptized with water by means of water. But you will be baptized, future tense. It's still future at the time of the ascension of Christ. The baptism by means of the Holy Spirit hadn't happened yet. It's still future. You will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit. Same preposition again. Notice the consistency in every one of these phrases. The N indicates the instrumental means, and the ACE is going to indicate the direction. Now, ACE isn't the, the direction or the ultimate goal is not a part of this passage. Not every element's there. You'll be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what happens about ten days later? You have the Holy Spirit descend at Pentecost. That's when this is fulfilled. This is the demarcation point. Everything else points to this event, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. Now, i use the English examples on this. John hit the ball with the bat. Now, when we use that English phrase, with, English prepositions are, you know, really funky as far as their use with Greek prepositions because the Greek preposition in can be translated by the English preposition with, for, or by. So what happened also in this passage is if you go back to Acts 1.5 and Matthew 3.11 where it says that uh, you will be baptized with the Spirit, in the English, it's the, it, it uses the preposition with, but notice the Greek preposition is still in, E-N. But the King James translated it with the Spirit. Now watch this. I'm going to go back to 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13 translated that same phrase in numity with the English preposition by the Spirit. You see why the English got everybody confused? You have a by the Spirit here and a with the Spirit in Acts 1.5. And they thought, ah, two different baptisms. But in both places, it uses the same Greek construction, which indicates there's not two different baptisms. There's only one baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is the means of the baptism, never the agent who performs the baptism. The prophecy in Matthew 3.11 was that Christ would baptize by means of the Spirit, in Acts 1.5, he says you will be baptized by means of the Spirit. And then when you get to 1 Corinthians, you have been baptized by means of the Spirit. And who's performing the baptism? Jesus Christ is performing the baptism. So Christ, you know, for probably for years, you have heard the definition of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit places you into Christ. What does that do? That makes the Holy Spirit the grammatical subject and the agent of the verb. But that's not what these texts say, is it? The texts all say Christ is the subject and performer of the action, not the Holy Spirit. He is the means. He is what the, he is what the Son uses to identify the believer with himself. Just as John the Baptist used water as a symbol of the uh, convert's cleansing and identification with the new state of repentance. So back to our English example. When we take an English sentence like such as John hit the ball with or by means of the bat, the bat being the instrument used to hit the ball, John is the grammatical subject. Hit is an active voice verb. John, the subject, performs the action of hitting. Now when we change that to a uh, passive voice 
construction. The ball was hit by John. Uh, I, I still didn't change that. Go back and change that slide. The ball was hit by John uh, with the bat. Just drop out that second mention of the ball. The subject now is the ball. The verb is was hit, but John is still the one hitting the ball. But now it's in a passive voice construction, so it's the ball was hit by John. And in English, we use that preposition by to indicate the agent of the verb. That's why we get confused in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when it says, for by one spirit, by, by in English indicates the performer of the action or passive voice construction. So we think that that means the spirit is the one who performs the action. But actually in Greek, here we go, Greek uses the preposition hupa or dia to indicate the agent of the action in a passive voice construction, not the preposition in, which is what we have in uh, 1 Corinthians 12:13. Is that get, becoming a little more clear to everybody? Because this is so crucial to tighten our focus on just exactly what this means. Because when we get into our lesson this evening on believers' baptism, the real issue in in water baptism or ritual baptism is what it depicts. It is nothing more than a picture, a training aid for understanding this abstract, invisible, non-experiential reality called the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. Okay, last chart that I use for comparison indicated that in Matthew 3.11, John is the one who performs the action. He uses water by means of water to effect a new state repentance. He's compared to Jesus, who in the future will use the Spirit in the same way John uses water, parallel construction, to affect a new state. It's not stated there. It's stated in other passages like 1 Corinthians 12.13 that it's into his body. 1 Corinthians 10.2 used the same uh, type of construction. That's the baptism by Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. Uh, sea and cloud are the instruments used to affect the new state identification with Moses and his faith. Then 1 Corinthians 12.13 doesn't state who performs the action. The spirit is the instrument and the goal is into the body. Now, there's only one, ba- one baptism that is important for the church age, and that's the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. That is a, what we call it a real baptism. It's non-experiential. That means when it happens at the instant that you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you don't experience anything. You don't have a, a uh, warm rush through your body. You don't uh, uh, kind of get flushed a little bit. You don't get uh, the joy of the Spirit all of a sudden. I mean, those things might happen, but not because you got baptized by the Holy Spirit. It's just because you got, you're, you're saved, and, and all of a sudden you realize what that means. But it is not experiential. The only way we learn about it is we go to the Scripture, we study the Scripture, and the Scripture tells us this is what happened, and this is what it provided uh, for us. Okay. Now let's go over to our lesson for tonight as we go beyond this to find out just what is going on with the ritual baptism of the of the New Testament. I pointed out last time that there are three ritual baptisms in the New Testament. The first is the baptism by John the Baptist, where John baptized individuals in the Jordan 
uh, for the purpose of indicating their repentance and identification with his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they were baptized for repentance. That was one ritual baptism. Second ritual baptism had to do with Jesus' baptism. It was a unique baptism. It was done by John, and to the casual observer, it looked like anybody else's baptism, but there was a difference because Jesus wasn't a sinner. He did not need to repent, so he wasn't repenting. It was a unique baptism indicating the initiation or the beginning of his uh, uh, public ministry. And when he did that, when John baptized him in the Jordan, there's this affirmation from God. You hear the voice of God the Father from heaven. Behold, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then the Holy Spirit is pictured as a dove descending upon Jesus. And that is uh, the beginning of his ministry. So you have the baptism by John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, and then you have believer's baptism. Now, sometimes you'll hear Baptist preachers say, we need to follow Jesus in baptism. Well, there's an error there because the baptism of the believer in the church age is distinct from the baptism of John the Bap- uh, of Jesus. So we're not following Jesus. In ba- it's a different baptism. But you have to make these distinctions. Now, when we discussed this, I ran across a great quote from uh, Dr. Lewis Berry Schaefer, founder and president of Dallas Seminary in the seventh volume of his Systematic Theology. Uh, he wrote, In approaching the theme of ritual baptism, it is recognized that over this subject the most bitter divisions have been allowed to arise in the church, divisions and exclusions for which it is difficult to account in the light of two facts. Number one, the great majority of those who are given to separations confess that there is no saving value in the ordinance. Notice he doesn't call it a sacrament. You don't receive grace or anything through, through uh, ritual baptism. So everybody recognizes you don't get saved by it, and you don't get sanctified by it. Okay. Now, there are subgroups who believe that. Church of Christ believe that if you're not baptized, you won't get saved. That's part of their, uh, their dogma. There are other groups that teach that if you aren't baptized, you don't get saved. There are even some groups that teach that if an infant dies between birth and infant baptism, then it doesn't get saved. Okay, but these are not what I would call uh, normative positions among, among among Protestants, whether you hold to infant baptism or whether you hold to believer's baptism. uh, Everybody would say for the most part they don't it, baptism doesn't save and it doesn't sanctify second he says all who look into it with freedom from prejudice recognize that fruitful spiritual Christians are to be found on each side of the controversy and so there are good learned men who argue and what he's talking about primarily is the mode of baptism whether it's sprinkling or immersion he's Dr. Chafer did not argue about whether or not there will, should be baptism. Okay? His, he was recognizing the debate over mode, whether it's by sprinkling or, or by immersion. Remember, Dr. Chafer was an ordained Southern Presbyterian minister. Presbyterians practice infant baptism. Dr. Walvert who was his successor as president of Dallas Seminary, 
baptized each of his children as infants. He was an ordained Presbyterian minister. See, these are these little facts that most people don't know about. So don't get all wrapped around the axle whether you agree or disagree with what I say tonight. You have to understand that this is something that you don't go into battle over. The foundational verse for believers' baptism is given in the passage known as the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. This is actually stated several different ways in each of the Gospels, excluding John's, and in the book of Acts. Jesus several times gave marching orders to his disciples. They're not just different ways of presenting what he said at one time. He gave these marching orders several times. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Now, this hyper-dispensationalist I read today said this is connected to the kingdom message. No, it was not connected. There's nothing in Matthew 28 talking about the kingdom. This was the marching orders to the disciples. Now, let's exegete it a little bit so we understand just what's going on here. First of all, we have the word go. And the word go sounds in English like a mandate. Go! And you'll often hear uh, preachers preach on how important it is to go. Well, it's a participle in the original. It's not an imperative. It is a participle, but a participle sometimes can have an imperatival force, especially if the participle precedes an imperative verb. It picks up the command impact of the verb because it's right there in front of it. And I think that's the more I've studied this over the years, uh, I, I, the more I've come to understand this participle has an imperatival force in front of it. Now, some people say it's an imperatival force of time or, uh, or manner such as while you are going. And that's, that's legitimate as well. Jesus has recognized that, that y'all are going to go. You know, when I get through and say amen tonight, y'all are going to go. Y'all are going to go home. Y'all are going to go out to eat. Y'all are going to go do whatever y'all are going to go do tonight. But everybody's going to go. And what Jesus would be saying, if you take it as a temporal participle, is while you are going, while you're going to work, while you're going out with friends, while you're uh, engaged as a parent, you should be involved in making disciples. So you can understand it either way. I do think, though, there is legitimate grammatical grounds for understanding it with an imperatival force, but it can go either way. Go, therefore, and make disciples. That's your main verb. Your controlling verb here is to make disciples. It's an aorist active imperative. Now, an aorist imperative is a stress point. This is boldface. A present imperative imperative indicates uh, standard operating procedure, usually used for something that should be an ongoing characteristic. When an aorist imperative is used, he's, whoever's writing is simply punching it up. This is a high priority. This is vital. This is important. Uh, do this. And so the command here is to make disciples. Now, a disciple is one of those words that gets used and overused and abused in Christianity today. And you always have all kinds of people talking about discipleship this, and we're going to have small group discipleship programs and everything, and nobody really understands what a disciple is. The term mathetes basically means a learner or a student a learner or a student, and it can be in any kind of context. Jesus 
for the purposes of what he was going to do in laying the foundation for the church, chose 12 men to teach them, to make them students, and they were to be the foundation for the church, minus uh, Judas Iscariot, of course, who was not a believer. Now, in this structure, Jesus not only says, make disciples of all nations, but he follows up that mandate with two participles. Now, what's important here is to understand the connection of these two participles to the main verb. He's not just saying, make disciples, period. He's saying, make disciples a certain way. It's sort of like if I'm out with, uh, with uh, some guys or ladies, because there's some ladies who are excellent shots, and we're down at the shooting range, and we're uh, popping caps and having a good time, and, and uh, somebody's a really good shot, and then... Uh, I pull out my Colt 1851 Navy uh, cap and ball revolver and say, okay, let's see how you can do hit the target with this. Notice I didn't say hit the target, period. I said hit the target with this. See, it's not only the mandate to hit the target or shoot the target, but to shoot the target with a particular gun. Okay, You're you're not fulfilling the request. If you shoot the target with a 45 automatic, you're not fulfilling the request if you shoot the target with the 30 odd six with a, uh, with a scope on it. Okay, it's hit the target with this, with the 1851 uh, Navy Colt. So that's how this works, is you've got two participles here that are participles of either manner or means. Those, those concepts are very close together. And what they do is they describe how the mandate is to be fulfilled. You are to make disciples by baptizing and by teaching. You're not supposed to make disciples by going out to uh, <clears throat> papados and having uh, uh, crawfish for dinner. You see, it tells you how you are to make disciples. It restricts it with these participles of, of means. You do it by baptizing and by teaching. And they're connected, um, I mean, they're not connected by a conjunction here, which is interesting. So they pile up on top of each other. It's the idea, make disciples by baptizing, by teaching. So it's added together. Now, the baptizing here is said to be baptizing them that is the disciples, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, indicating there's identification with the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then by teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Notice this last phrase is one I find overlooked. It says, lo, I am with you till the end of the age. So that sets the context for this entire statement to be until the end of the age. It's not saying, you know, until the age begins. See, there's this view that baptism really only meant things, meant something to the, gent, uh, to the Jews, so it's only operative during an early transitional period in the book of Acts. But see, it's connected to a statement here that Jesus is making when he says, I'm with you until the end of the age. This mandate to make disciples extends all the way through the end of the age, Right? Otherwise, let's stop and go home. See, look at the second part of it. It's making disciples how? By teaching. 
That's what we do Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night. This is biblical discipleship, teaching the Word of God so you can become students, so that you can grow and mature, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But teaching is linked just as much to the command as baptism is in this particular construction. And the temporal boundary is the end of the age. What age are we talking about? Church age. Okay, now, what I want to do now is just look briefly, very briefly, at the parallels to this Great Commission. Uh, Mark 16, 15 says, uh, summarizes it this way, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to all creation. doesn't say anything about teaching or baptism. just summarizes it with the uh, Greek word keruso to proclaim the gospel. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has not believed shall be condemned. Now, you're going to run into folks who are going to say, Look, look, see, you've got to be baptized to be saved. See what it says? He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. Yeah, but in the second half of that construction, it just says, But he who has not believed shall be condemned. See, the point is the person who believes, who doesn't believe is not saved. The person who believes is saved. Baptism was the result. It was what you expected a convert to do. It doesn't bring salvation. Uh, the reason it's, um, it doesn't say he who has not believed and wasn't baptized shall be condemned. See, the important factor, the only factor in salvation is faith alone, in Christ alone. Then we have the Luke account, Luke 24, 46 through 49. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city, that's Jerusalem, until you are clothed with power from on high. And that repentance for the, uh, well, where did 47 come in the middle of that? Um, These verses just got all separated. Let's try to put it together. He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Now go to the bottom verse here. And that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Then verse 48, You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. What was the promise of my Father? That's the Holy Spirit. I'm sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, when Luke picks up his pen and writes part two, which is the book of Acts, he has Jesus reiterate this at the beginning of Acts. Part of this we've already done. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized by means of the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then in verse 8, Jesus expands on this and says, but you will receive power... When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, which is the day of Pentecost, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So in sum, what we see is that the essence of this commission to the apostles, which lays the foundation of the church, is that they are supposed to be witnesses of what Jesus Christ taught. They are to go out and as carrying out this mission to make students of believers involves two things, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and 
teaching them to do all that I observed. So Matthew 28, 19 and 20, teaching all that I have commanded you. Uh, those verses are the most explicit of these various passages. That's why most people go to Matthew 28, 19 and 20 rather than these others. Now, the next question we ask is, okay, how, how do we understand this? Baptism uh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What did he mean by that? Because he doesn't say in that passage, baptize in water. Water isn't mentioned there. <coughs> so the question that some people ask and should be asked is, what baptism is this? Is this a ritual baptism, or is he talking about, uh, a, is this a circumlocution for talking about baptism by means of the Holy Spirit? Which is it? And the way we answer this question is how is to go to the book of Acts to take it step by step and see how the apostles understood and implemented that from Peter all the way through Paul. And so that's what I want to do. Let's turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 contains the account of the day of Pentecost. And on the day of Pentecost, the... Holy Spirit descends upon the twelve. Now, this is important to realize who is involved here. Acts 2. Acts 2, 1 says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, you will see pictures of of the day of Pentecost, and they will have 120 people out on the steps of the temple when the Holy Spirit descended. There's a problem with that. That is, the only time you have 120 people mentioned is earlier in uh, Acts when 120 believers gather together in verse 15 for the selection of Matthias, and they gathered in the upper room. Now, let's just think about this for a minute, folks. Number one, you wouldn't have 120 people staying together in one room for 10 days. It gets a little crowdy, crowded, and it's in, the, um, it's in the early summer. It's in June. There's no air conditioning. It's, it's a little rough having that many people in that small of a space for very long. Number two is that in uh, the uh, practice of Judaism at that particular time, Whenever you had a mixed company, women were on one side, men were on the other side, and they were kept separate, you would not have all of these men and women spending time 24-7 in the same room for a long period of time. So just from common sense approach to the, to the issue here, you would recognize you're not going to have 120 people hanging around for a long time. But then we have a grammatical argument. Remember in the... In the text, uh, in the original Greek text, there's no verses and there's no chapters. So when you read verse 1 of chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. The they is a pronoun. And the rule in grammar is that you look for the nearest plural, since this is a third-person plural pronoun, you look for the nearest plural noun prior to this, and that is the what's called the antecedent or the reference for this pronoun. So the last verse of verse of chapter one, one twenty six says, "And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles." 
And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They refers to the 11 apostles. It doesn't refer to the 120. As a matter of fact, if you go through and trace out the use of the third-person plural pronoun in chapter 1, with except for this small number of verses around 15 and 16 where it refers to the uh, 120 uh, maybe once or twice, the rest of the chapter it always refers to just the 11. So it's just the 11 that are gathered together. The Holy Spirit descends on them. Why? Because they're the foundation of the church. That's Ephesians chapter 4. It's not the 120 that's the foundation of the church. It's only the 11 apostles that are foundation. They're the first ones who get the Holy Spirit because they're the, they're, there's unity here. That's what Ephesians 4, 4 is all about. One faith, one hope, one baptism, one body. And, and it's all grounded on one foundation, which is the, based on the 11 apostles. So it doesn't happen to everybody else. Now, everybody else in Acts who gets the Holy Spirit and the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit and speaks in tongues does it only at the hand of one of the apostles. And that's to show that there's not this split in the body of Christ. You don't have a, Jew, a Jewish body of Christ, a Samaritan body of Christ, a Gentile body of Christ. You only have one body of Christ. And it's grounded on the 11 apostles. So they're the ones who receive the in, initial pouring out of the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And I have been told by uh, those who know a lot more languages than I do that there are only 11 language groups, even though you have several geographical and ethnic groups listed. You have, I think, 15 or 16 in uh, verses uh, 8 through uh, 12. But actually, there are 11 language groups. My research, I can't even come up with 11 language groups. I think there were only five or six. So that doesn't minimize the miracle of speaking in languages but it's not like they're speaking 120 different languages. They're only speaking four or five. You've got Latin, Rome, uh, Latin, Greek, Aramaic, uh, prob- uh, maybe a few dialects, from uh, Arabic dialects and uh, Coptic, maybe some obscure dialects from Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. But those were all uh, pro- Roman provinces in Asia Minor. They had been overrun by the Greeks for over 300 years, and Greek was the language that everybody spoke uh, as the common language up in Asia Minor and Turkey. So that's the background of Peter's uh, sermon in Acts chapter 2. And at the conclusion of that sermon, we just want to look at what happens at the end. At the conclusion of that message in Acts 2.38, he gives a command. Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just use, I, when, when I was young, there was, you know, I just like to get involved in some good theological wrangling with people at times, and I used to love to go to the Texas State Fair. And I wasn't the only one. This was one of those things that theological students like to sharpen the edge of their thinking on. And there was always a booth at the Texas State Fair in Dallas uh, set up by the Church of Christ. And they'd have these little uh, uh, square boxes, and they'd have about five Bible questions in it, and you had some kind of electrical connection in there, and you would uh, poke in there 
uh, what you thought the answer was to the multiple choice question. You'd pick A, B, C, or D, and you'd probably, and the light would come off, and, and uh, you got to test your Bible knowledge. So we'd go down there and test our Bible knowledge, and then they'd try to explain to us that we, and they'd always use Acts 2.38 to show that we needed to be baptized in order to be saved. Because Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And they would argue that you have to be baptized in order to get the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, you got to know the Greek here. This is an extremely complex Greek construction in this passage, and it's poorly translated in English, and it makes this, this phrase in the middle, let each of you be baptized in the name of Christ uh, for the forgiveness of your sins, as if uh, that is a, a second command after repent. Actually, repent is a plural, second-person plural imperative. That means y'all repent. And you see down that last phrase, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? That's a second-person plural. Y'all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Am I making myself clear? The you in the middle, each of you, what do you think that you is? That's a singular you. Ah, See, it starts with a second-person plural, repent, and then goes to a second-person singular, and then it goes back to a second-person plural. So actually, to make it a little more clear in the English, it's repent, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ on account of the forgiveness of your sins. That's how it should be understood. It's not in order to get. It has the idea of because or on account of the forgiveness of your sins. The, you receive the forgiveness of your sins when we put our faith in Christ. And that's what Peter is saying here by repent, is he's indicating changing your mind about who Jesus is. He just got through talking to all of these Jews about the fact that they had crucified Jesus as Messiah and rejected it. Now you need to change your mind and accept Jesus as your Savior. And as a result of that, you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit just as we did. And then, subsequent to that, let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. This is where this shows us the connection. Baptized in the name of Jesus. Remember, the only precedent you have to this is back in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the only thing that gives any meaning to this is being baptized in the name of Jesus. Now, does it mention water? No, it doesn't mention water at all in this passage. But it's not talking about the receiving the Holy Spirit because it's be baptized and you will, uh, it's repent and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, then be baptized. So we're not talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit here. We're talking about uh, another form of baptism. So this is properly understood to be ritual baptism. I'll show you where it becomes a little more clear later on. It doesn't mention water in every passage. It mentions water in some passages, but it doesn't mention it at all because this is understood. And if you remember last week, I showed you a picture of the of the mikvah, mikvahot outside the Holda gates on the entry to the temple that there were at least 30 different places for which ritual washing outside of the entryway to the temple. And so when the 11 apostles are gathered outside of the of the temple and they have 
3,000 converts, they were all baptized right then and there because they had these ritual, these pools for ritual washing, 30 of them right there, so they could take 11 of them and then start running an assembly line, and they could easily baptize 3,000 people in one day. So Acts 2.41 says, So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day were added about 3,000 souls. So that took place right there on the steps of the temple. Now the next place that we have a mention of baptism is in Acts chapter 8, and this involves two different episodes. And it doesn't involve an apostle. It involves Philip, who was one of the seven chosen in Acts chapter 6 to assist the apostles. And in Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 9, we're, we read about this episode. Actually, the ep- it starts in verse 4, talking about what's going on in Samaria. Philip went down. That's because he's going from a higher elevation in Jerusalem down to, to Samaria. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Uh, that's I'm in Acts 8, 4 and 5. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. These were all miracles that just attested to his message. And there was a great joy in that city. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery. And then we have this story about uh, Simon. Then skip down to verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Actually, I think it's an imperative verb here. It isn't a process. It's they were baptized, men and women alike. So, again, we see that baptism follows immediately upon uh, conversion. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. So we have Philip going to Samaria and many converts, and they're immediately uh, baptized. Then in Acts 8.16, skip down, and we come to the the episode C. Philip is not, Philip the evangelist isn't an apostle. So see, they haven't experienced everything yet. They've been baptized, ritual water baptism, but they haven't received the Holy Spirit. In verse 14 we read, Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, that is a a synonym for believing the gospel, had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, apostles, And when they had come down, that they being Peter and John, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. So here's the order. They trust in Christ. They go through ritual baptism. Then they receive the Holy Spirit when when John and Peter come to them. Verse 16 says, For he had not yet, he being the Holy Spirit, had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So we have to trace this phrase here through Acts. Every time we see baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, it, it's talking about water baptism. We see that most clearly in the latter part of this chapter when 
The angel, uh, an angel of the Lord, not the pre-incarnate Christ, Old Testament angel of the Lord, but an angel, spoke to Philip and told him to go to the Negev to a road down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Sound familiar? Same Gaza that we hear about on the news in the Gaza Strip. Those towns have been around for a long time. Uh, so, so on the road that went from Jerusalem to Gaza, he went and behold, and notice it says, this is desert. Right, gang? Those who went, this is desert. Mm-hmm. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, goes on, talks about him. He comes up to him. He's down there in his chariot. He's reading the prophet Isaiah. Philip comes to him and asks him in verse 30, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he asks Philip to come up and sit with him. And the place in the scripture where he read was from Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he's opened not his mouth. So basically Philip explains the gospel to him, and he trusts Christ as his Savior. And as they go down the road, they came to some water in verse 36. As they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Okay, so here's the connection. He is clearly a, a water baptism, ritual baptism. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. Okay, this happens right after baptism. Now, the problem I have with some of this is... now. This is the Ethiopian eunuch is well grounded in Old Testament theology. Most of these people are well grounded in the Old Testament. They're getting baptized immediately. Personally, I think people need a little time because they need to be instructed what all this is about because most people are today are ignorant of the Old Testament, but most of the folks that we're seeing so far are very knowledgeable about Old Testament doctrine. So now we see that it's, it's immediate and it's water baptism and it's not with a Jew, it's with an Ethiopian, it's with a Gentile. Then in Acts chapter 9 we have the episode with Paul's baptism after Paul saw Jesus on the road to Damascus. He was blinded by the bright light and he went on to Damascus and there a certain disciple named Ananias, was instructed by the Lord to go to uh, Saul and to uh, pray for him and to heal his blindness and to baptize him. In Acts 9.18, we read, Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. That doesn't mention water, but he's, it's not baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's already happened at the instant of his conversion. Acts chapter 10, when uh, Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles at Caesarea by the sea. He says uh, he is reporting on it in Acts 10. uh, He said, after they spoke with tongues, notice Peter's there, it's an apostle, this is a new group, Gentiles. We've seen Jewish converts in Acts 2, Samaritans. In, uh, in Acts 8, and now Gentiles under Peter, an apostle. So Peter's involved in each of these. Peter on the day of Pentecost, Peter in Samaria with John, and Peter here in Acts 10, tying it all together. 
Surely no one can refuse water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. So they haven't been baptized by water yet, but ritual baptism, but they have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And he ordered them to be baptized, how? In the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few days. Okay, we're running out of time. I just want to hit a couple more. Acts 16 33, this is when Lydia and her family are saved in Philippi. And uh, Paul, he took them that very no- hour of the night, that is Paul, and washed their, uh, excuse me, this happens right after the Philippian jailer is saved. And he took them that hour of the night and washed their wounds, that is the jailer did, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. So the Philippian jailer says to Paul and Silas while they're in prison, there in the Philippian jail, what must I do to be saved? Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved in your household. And then he took them that very night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized. Uh, earlier in Acts 16:15, which I thought I had up there, we have the story of uh, a verse about Lydia. When she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, that would be Luke and Paul, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. So Lydia was baptized. Uh, when Paul comes to Corinth at the end of his, toward the end of his second missionary journey, this is 52, 53 A.D., Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. Now, when we get into 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that he baptized just a few. He baptized Crispus and Gaius and the household of Stephanus. Now, when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 1, it's about 54 to 55, which is uh, the same time he is in Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. Now, he, uh, Luke records that there were many of the Corinthians who were believed and baptized. So if Paul only baptized three households, who did the rest of it? His assistants. I remember a few years ago, I was in south-central Los Angeles at a large Baptist church, and I went through one of the longest Sunday morning services I've ever gone through in my life. If it was one minute, it was three hours. And it went forever. And there was singing, and there was testimonies and there was an infant dedication and then there was more singing and special music and then finally after an hour and a half it got to the preaching so I got up and I taught for about 45 minutes and then I finished and then we sang some more and then there were some more testimonies and then there were three or four baptisms and then we sang some more and then we finished. <laughs> I was exhausted. I forgot what, by the time it was over with, I forgot what I spoke on. But what was interesting was that the pastor stood down at the pulpit and talked about what baptism signified while the assistant pastors were in the baptistry doing the baptism work. So he didn't get wet, not like an unfortunate pastor in, in Waco a few years ago that had the cordless mic with him and electrocuted himself in the baptistry. That's just a horrible situation. And, um, but 
See, that's what Paul did. Paul did not have the time to fulfill his apostolic mission to take care of these administrative details. That's what he means when he says, I wasn't commissioned to baptize. His assistants did that. If Some people have said, well, Paul says he wasn't sent to baptize, he was sent to preach the gospel. If Paul wasn't supposed to baptize at all, which is what people try to make that mean, he wouldn't have baptized Stephanus or Gaius or Crispus. He wouldn't because Paul didn't do what he wasn't supposed to do at all. He wouldn't have he wouldn't have baptized three or four families if he wasn't supposed to baptize at all. The, that twists the meaning of that statement. His mission, his primary mission as an apostle, was to proclaim the gospel, and his assistants carried out these the administrative uh, aspects. And at the same time, he says that in Acts 19. If Acts 19, if, if 1 Corinthians 1 means I'm not supposed to baptize at all, then why at the same time that he writes 1 Corinthians 1, do you have the situation in Acts chapter 19 where he discovers in Ephesus these converts of John the Baptist, Old Testament saints, who have never heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit or that there is a Holy Spirit. They've been baptized only into John's baptism, verse 3. And Paul said in verse 4, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who is coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the what name of the Lord Jesus. So we keep seeing the same phraseology. Jesus said uh, that we are to make disciples by baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And, and when we see this phraseology, baptizing in the name of the Lord Jesus all the way through Acts, it's always associated with this immediate ritual baptism. Why? Because the ritual water baptism doesn't do anything. It is a picture, though, of what happens in the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is non-experiential and that nobody, nobody feels or experiences or sees. And so it's a picture of that. Now, we're out of time, so I need to come back. Do this some more next time, wrap it up, and tie all this together with the baptism of the Holy Spirit so we have a clear understanding of, of what this is and deal with some misconceptions, misnomers, wrong things about baptism as well as what it does, what it doesn't do and what it does. It doesn't save. It doesn't sanctify. It is just a visual aid, just like the Lord's table. And... In case y'all don't make it back for part two, I often think every time I perform a baptism and every time I see somebody get baptized, it's the same thing as when I either perform a wedding or I am sitting observing a wedding. You see the folks up there and they repeat the vows and you realize, gee, I did that too. And it's a reminder of what you have done and what has happened to you. And just as at the, at the Lord's table, every time we do it, we remember who Jesus was. Every time we see somebody get baptized, it is a reminder of everything that Jesus Christ did for us at the instant of salvation. It is that ongoing training aid that happens every time we witness it. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things and help us to study your word, faithfully understand what these things indicate, what baptism means and its uh, significance for the Christian life. Father, we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.